Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. I am really excited to begin a series through the book of Genesis here at Grace. This is as important as it can be as we gather around God's Word uh, and think about what it means to understand the very foundations of everything, everything that is. And Genesis 1 is where we are. Uh, That song we were just singing is a fascinating song because... It really takes some pondering to understand well what's going on. I'm sure many of you have sung that before, if not all. And it's an interesting thing because do you realize what we're doing in this this hymn as we sing, all creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. And then what do we start doing? We start commanding inanimate objects. Right? We start talking to and... Uh, commanding the sun and the moon to praise God. And then we talk to the rushing wind that aren't so strong and apparently will be this afternoon quite strong. Ye clouds that sail in heaven along, oh, praise him. We're talking to things that don't hear, right? We're talking to the moon and to the stars, the lights of evening, and we're commanding them to praise God. Uh, Just a fascinating thing to do, an odd thing to do, unless you step back and say, what in the world? Why are we talking to the moon? The moon doesn't hear you when you talk to it. Even if it had ears, it's too far away to hear, right? So it's a strange thing to do, to command things to praise God. So what are we doing? Uh, why, Why would we go through this little exercise of talking to things that aren't listening, that don't hear you? Actually, let's talk about that. What, what do you think? What are we doing? Why do we do that odd thing? What, what is that all about? Any ideas? We just did it. We really shouldn't know what we're doing, right? Any ideas? What we, let's talk about this. What's going on in that? Okay, God needs more praise, so he'll get more if we talk to things that don't listen and can't listen, Right? Uh, yes, okay, he, th- there's more praise uh, that w- we should ascribe to God. So, so let's keep going, Laura. Well, everything that God has made, including all these creatures that we enter, all creation, is meant to praise God. Yes. And as we recognize that, it causes us to well up in praise for him. Good. He's made those things. Their existence is to bring him praise. Good. Good. Right. So uh, we're not actually talking to the moon and telling it to do something. What we're doing is acknowledging what the Bible says is true of the moon and the star and the wind and and, uh, the sun and all these things. They're created to what? Declare his glory. And so we are saying do that. And in doing that, we're not saying those things aren't. We're saying We need to see those things as doing that. That's their purpose, is to do that. And our job is to recognize that. And so actually, as we're talking to the moon, we're talking to ourselves, aren't we? We're we're preaching a little sermon to ourselves and saying, don't have a disconnect between these, these things God has made that do glorify him all the time and how ignorant of that we can often be. 
We can just see these things for what they are and not as conduits of praise to God. And so what we're really doing is talking to ourselves. The, the things he's made that are intended to glorify him more than anything else in recognizing his glory displayed in everything he's made. And then it really bears down, this hymn does, on those whom Christ has entered in. Those who call themselves followers of Jesus are the ones who are supposed to be leading the chorus of praise. We're the ones charged with worshiping God as the examples of ones making those connections. Uh, We're the ones who do that. As Redemption Song begins, in spite of trials that come our way, I love the Gerald's testimony this morning, that that our dependence on God, our recognition for who God is, often deepens considerably when we go through hard times. And so, um, in spite of trials that come our way, let him... uh, Did I do that? All right, okay. All right. Um, Good, we're good. That's good, Kenny. We're good. Um, Yeah, so, um, I, I love that hymn because it gets at our very purpose, our reason for existence, And that's to worship God. And so we're really commanding one another to praise him. Praise God. Fulfill your reason for existence more than anything else. And the reason for your existence is really uh, the message of Genesis. And so as we begin this series, Preaching Through Genesis, I'm really excited that we're getting at the fundamental questions of life. It's fascinating to me that depending on what phase of life you're in, you have pressing questions that differ depending on the chapter of your life. I, when I, I think back to my earliest days as a kid, I had pressing questions that were, were driving me, like, will I make the Little League team? There was a time in my life that was the dominant question. No question mattered more to me than whether or not I'd make the Little League team. I didn't, by the way, if you were wondering. Um, uh, I had questions like, Um, I wonder if I'll get beat up at school today because Godfrey DeWar keeps threatening every day to beat me up at school, and I bet he can. Uh, So those kinds of questions. I I had questions about um, girls I liked. I had questions about who would win the custody battle between my two parents for where I would end up. I had questions like, will I ever actually graduate from high school given my track record as a student? I had all sorts of questions. Will I go to college? Could I ever get in? Should I go to college? What will I major in? Should I get married? We have all these questions that dominate our lives. I don't know what the ones that tend to dominate your thinking are at this point in your life, but... It's very important that we have God's questions as our most important questions. The questions God thinks should dominate our thinking. It doesn't mean those other questions aren't important or that we should think about and even pray about and dwell on certain questions. Should we buy a home or not? Should we move? All sorts of questions we have that are important But we've got to let the most important questions from God's perspective truly dominate our thinking. And that gives all the other questions their importance. That gives all the other questions that we ask their frame of reference that we've got to have. If you've never read Calvin's Institutes, I encourage you to. And if you can't muster up 
enough time to read them all, just read the very first section of Calvin's Institutes. It's got this priceless section where he talks about knowledge of God. And he, he talks about wisdom. And Calvin starts off the Institutes by saying, wisdom, when it's solid and true, consists almost entirely of two parts, he says. If you really want wisdom, and I desperately want wisdom, he says, if you really want to be wise, you've got to get two questions right. He says, our, our wisdom, as far as it's solid and true, consists almost entirely of two parts. Knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. You've got to know who God is or you'll never be wise. You've got to know who you are in light of who God is or you'll never be wise. And then he goes on to brilliantly talk about the way those two things work together. You see God and then you see yourself for who you are. You see yourself for who you are made in God's image and then you see God more clearly and on and on it goes. And there are no two questions. The book of Genesis answers more than those two questions. Who is God and who are we? And so we begin this study through this most important book. If I could only have two books of the Bible, and I'm so glad we are never given that, that limitation. But if I could only have two, it would be Genesis and a gospel. Pick any gospel. Uh, because really, uh, Genesis lays the foundation for everything Jesus fulfills, displays, brings into clarity. And so Genesis is a wonderfully named book. There are some books of the Bible, if I were given the option, I would change their title. You know the titles aren't inspired? Did you know that? They were added later. Um, I would change, for instance, the book of Numbers title. You accountants may love that title, but um, <laughs> it doesn't make you want to dive into the book. Actually, the older title for, Gen for Numbers was The Wilderness Wanderings. Now that is a far better title, is it not? But um, there are other books of the Bible I would change the titles of, but we don't need to get into that right now. But the book of Genesis is perfectly named. It means origin, the, the beginnings, the the foundation of everything. That's what Genesis is about. It's a perfectly titled book. Genesis, the, or, the book of origin. That's the whole theme. And the theme of this, this book is about God and our purpose for existence and how we have strayed from that purpose. And then it starts the process of redemption, of restoring what we've lost when we've strayed. It's the foundation for everything. I believe there is not one article in the news today that isn't profoundly influenced by the book of Genesis. Not one. And so I'm really excited to dive into it. Now, we're, we're going to focus on chapters 1 through 11. We're not positive where we're going after that. But we're for sure going to preach through chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis. And that makes sense to break there because chapters 1 through 11 are the primeval history of the world. It's the very foundational history of the world. And then chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, are this bridge between 1 through 11 and then what follows chapters, chapter 12, 1 through 3. And that chapter 12, 1 through 3 is God establishing his covenant with Abraham. As God creates everything, human beings stray from God 
And then right in the beginning when they stray, he starts to restore what they've destroyed. And then in chapter 12, he starts to focus that redeeming work in one family, the family of Abraham. And so he establishes that covenant in 1 through 3. And then the rest of the book, all the way through chapter 50, is the outworking of God's fulfilling of his promise in the family of Abraham, the covenant people of God that one day will explode around the world and for all peoples through the Messiah, through the one who would come. And so, so it, it, we're, we're focusing on 1 through 11, this foundational history. And as I said, the two questions we will be looking for every time we go to the Bible in general, I encourage you, go looking for a God hunt. Go on a character of God hunt. Who is God needs to be your driving question. Every time you read the Bible, every, every passage of the Bible, say, who are you, God? Who do I find you to be in this passage? Who do I find you to be in this book? Who is God is our driving question. And then our second question is, well, then who are we? Who am I in light of who God is? And those are the questions we'll be answering. And what I want you to realize is it's all about God. Chapters, uh, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 are our, our passage for this morning. This is the passage I have been assigned. And so let's read these two verses, unpack them a little bit, and then expand on what we have here. Genesis 1. One and two, let me go to the Lord. Lord, please help us now as we go to your word to learn from you. It's your word. You're a God who has given us this revelation of yourself. So please, would you help us to learn all you have for us this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. That's it. That's our passage. And, and what I want you to realize is right out of the gate in the Bible, the very first verse of the Bible starts with God. In the beginning, God. And we then find God all over this book and this chapter in particular. This word for God, Elohim, is used 35 times in chapter 1 alone. 35 times. There are only 31 verses in the whole chapter. And, and God is there 35 times. It's all about God. So right off the bat, we start with a fundamental assumption of God's existence and his prominence and his presence and his creating power. So God is there. It's all about God. And please, as we go through the Bible, make sure it's all about God. It's so easy for us to... Uh, make it all about us, to make it a very human-centered or even self-centered book. And we do that with the Bible constantly. We do that with everything constantly. We, we tend to be very focused on ourselves, and so everything ends up being defined in relation to us. When in fact, everything is defined in relation to God, including us. And so we've got to make this all about God. Who is God? I've got to know who he is. I'll never know anything else rightly until I do. And what we find here is profound teaching about God himself. It says, in the beginning, God. 
In the beginning, God. It doesn't argue for his existence. It assumes it. Actually, the Bible says, if you deny God's existence, you're a fool. If you deny God's existence, it takes astounding suppression of what is evidently true everywhere you turn your eye. Now, if you're sitting here this morning and you're an atheist, that is not intended to offend you. It is intended to inform you and encourage you to look around with fresh eyes at everything you see and realize how much faith it takes in your worldview to deny the existence of God. The Bible says, if you read in Romans 1, for instance, that, that ever since the beginning, God has been uh, bellowing his presence to the world in the heavens that declare his glory in human beings made in his image in everything you see you see amazing evidence of who god is it really takes an an astounding suppression of what is evidently true about god to deny god and his existence and we see he's in the beginning when everything starts he's there already this is already pointing us to god's eternal nature that he never had a beginning he'll never have an end he's in no way bound by time he's an eternal god he's there in the beginning he's there at the start of everything he doesn't have a beginning he brings about beginnings for things he makes and then i find it fascinating that the very first thing we ever learn about God in the Bible is that he's the creator. The first thing we learn about God is this verb for created. This verb to describe who God is. He is the creator. This this verb, do you know, is not used of humans ever. It's only used of God. This verb created, uh, this verb uh, translated created, bara, is only used of God. Humans fashion things, they form things, but this word created, bring things into existence, is reserved for God. Now, there's a creative ability we have. I have an incredibly creative artist sitting in front of me right now. And, but, but Laura is only, when she paints, taking what God has done and creating uh, versions of what god has done she's not bringing anything into existence Uh, when we create when we build when we make when we fashion when we form we're not actually creating we are just extending out what the creator's already done and so as amazing as it is that we get to create and be creative let's make sure we see the limitations of our creative ability and our creative expression god alone creates God alone brings things into existence. We become pro-creators alongside creators with what God has already done and is continuing to do through us. He's the creator and he's the sustainer. He keeps it all going. He doesn't just get it going and then walk away or create it with certain properties that enable it to go independent of him. No, throughout the Bible, we see that this God who created is the God who sustains everything as well. And I think often, if we could just get this verb about God right, everything else would be right. If, if we could just really internalize That God is the creator of everything that is, and we then, therefore, are these utterly dependent created things. 
then everything else would fall in line. Now we can see ourselves rightly, our purpose rightly, our meaning rightly, our sin rightly. You can't define sin until you get God as creator right. You, you can't define our rebellion against the one who made us rightly until you see him as the one who made us. But if you see God as the one who made you, everything else falls into place. Now everything belongs to him. We answer to him for everything about ourselves. We answer to him for how he uses our senses of humor, our creative ability. We answer to him for how we uh, manage our relationships and invest in them. We answer to him for how we invest our free time and make our entertainment choices. We answer to our creator for the way we uh, steward our sexuality. We answer to our creator for the way we treat other people for the way we view the poor, for the way we uh, ascribe dignity to people. We answer to our creator for everything. And if we could just see God as the creator and ourselves as created, I think everything else falls into place. If we could just get the first verse of the Bible right, I think everything else would be right. And this is where we go astray. And this is where Adam and Eve went astray. They actually thought they knew better than the one who made them. It's insanity, really but it's an insanity we are all subject to. He's the creator of everything. It says he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. That's a very Hebrew way of saying everything. All things were made by him. The heavens and the earth, the spiritual realm, the physical realm, what, everything is made by God. He's the creator of the entire universe. And then when it says everything was formless and void or without form and void and everything was dark, that is is saying to us that apart from God, all we have is nothing. All we have is formlessness. All we have is darkness. We don't have anything apart from God. He's the one who brings form to formlessness. He's the one who brings reality when there's nothing but unreality. He's the one who brings light when all there is is darkness. He's the God who provides everything that is. He brings light to darkness. He's the one who said, let there be light, and there was. Apart from that powerful declaration of God, all we have is darkness. And then we see that it's the Spirit of God who's hovering over the face of the waters. It's this power of God that we will see as the Bible story of who God is unfolds, that this is not just a power emanating from God, but as you see, it's capitalized in your English translation, making a point that this is the Holy Spirit of God who is there with him, making all that we know all that is real in creation. As we continue on in the book of Genesis and throughout the Bible, we see that this creator God is personal and relational and he's the king over everything and therefore has the authority over everything and he's holy. Oh, he's self-revealing as well though. He's distinct from everything in creation but at the same time, he is speaking to his creation. He is walking with his created human beings in the garden. He's a God who reveals himself and speaks to us right from the beginning. I want to make some really big points about uh, what we're talking about here. Uh, We see God as the creator, and that means he's the only true God. If he made everything else, well, he's the only one that we worship. He's the only one who is God. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless. 
They're worthless idols. They're empty things we worship. But the Lord made the heavens. This profoundly informs our view of world religions. As much truth as there may be in other world religions, we recognize that any God who isn't the true creator God is a false God, is a worthless, a void God, an empty God. And God will outright mock us for worshiping things that aren't the true God. Throughout the Bible, he will say, wait, let me get this right. You're actually making something with your hands and then bowing down before it. When I'm the one who made the stuff you made the idol out of, and I'm the one who made your hands that made the idol. What are you thinking? And yet we fall into that constantly. That sort of idolatry. The Bible describes sin as idolatry more than any other way. This worship problem we have, worshiping things that aren't the true creator God. The Bible is serious that we see him alone as God. That's exactly where we go in the New Testament too. Paul and Barnabas are in Lystra. They do some miracles. The men in Lystra are beginning to worship them and offer sacrifices to them. And they freak out. Men, why are you doing these things? Worshiping Paul and Barnabas. We are also men of the same nature as you and preach the gospel to you that you should turn from these vain things, idols, in particular themselves, Paul and Barnabas, empty things, not worthy of worship, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. What are you doing? Don't worship anything, anyone but the one true God and the distinguishing mark of that one true God is he's the creator goes right back to Genesis 1.1. He made the heavens and the earth. That's the God who you worship. Not the works of your hands or some frail creature he made. And that means uh, we realize Jesus too taught about creation. Listen to Jesus here uh, in, in Matthew 19. We, here we get a lot in this verse. And he answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Here we get Jesus' answer to an ethical question on divorce that the religious leaders asked him, trying to trick him, trying to get him trapped with a very difficult question about divorce, given rabbinic law. And Jesus takes it in a very different direction than they were expecting. He says, have you not read, which is a quite offensive thing to say, especially to religious leaders, have you read the Bible? Uh, have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? So he begins to answer a question about divorce by going right back to Genesis 1 and establishing his belief and then his teaching in the creation account we're reading about here. You realize all that's loaded into this verse? Here we have Jesus' view, not just of creation. We have his view of, of gender. We have his, his view of marriage. We have a view of divorce that he builds out of that, that it is something, marriage is something God has made. We have Jesus' view of Scripture here, don't we, in this one verse. That in answer to an ethical question, he goes right to the Bible, right to Genesis, and we see what Jesus believed about creation, about sexuality, we see what he believed about marriage, and we see what he believed about the scriptures. To be a follower of Jesus means you need to believe the things he believed about these things. And he gives us powerful teaching on this that we then expand on. And what else is very important to realize about Jesus is not only did he believe in creation, he's the creator with the Father and the Spirit as well. For by him all things were created, 
both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. What we find, especially once we get to the New Testament, is Jesus is not just a great moral teacher. Jesus is not just a rabbi who taught us ways to live. Jesus is the creator. He was there with the Father and the Spirit in Genesis 1-1 creating. And you, you read through the New Testament and often the biblical authors in the New Testament begin their very specific arguments to specific problems in specific churches by establishing Jesus as the creator of everything. Read, read Hebrews 1. Read Romans 1. You'll see that Jesus is the creator God. That's why we worship him. That's why we've worshipped him this very morning together. He's the creator God. And now if you uh, keep your finger in Genesis 1 and go to John 1, we see an astounding truth here about Christ. Uh, Let's actually go right to one of those passages where right off the bat, the writer is wanting us to know Jesus is the creator. John 1 puts it beautifully. This is just astounding. Listen to how much like Genesis 1 this sounds. Here we have the Gospel of John written to Jews and Greeks, but probably even more to Greeks, but he he goes right back to Genesis nonetheless. The Hebrew Scriptures. In the beginning, sound familiar? Was the Word. Okay, the, the powerful, creative power of God, or in a Greek mind, the organizing principle of the world, the Lagos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, okay? And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything that was made was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Do you hear how much like Genesis 1 this sounds? And then we find out that he makes the world, and although the world was made through him, when he came into his world, we didn't recognize him. But then in verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is none less than the creator. That's why we, when we understand the gospel rightly, don't just have somebody who died for our sins. We have the creator who died for our sins. We have the creator who became one of us. Now, as we talk about all of this this wonderful teaching on who God is in the book of Genesis, I know that for some of you sitting there, the entire time, you've been thinking of things like fossil records. (laughs) You've been thinking of things like uh, the origin of species. You've been thinking of creation evolution discussions and is it a literal 24-hour days Genesis is teaching or is, it, uh, is there a gap between these two verses and what follows or is, does, does day mean long periods of time or is the Garden of Eden some sort of shelter? And those are all good questions. Sheltered place where God prevented the effects of the fall from me. All sorts of fascinating questions and good questions and important important questions and questions we should wrestle with and we think it's so important to wrestle with them we have resources on the website you can go to the ones that we think really get after these discussions well to explore those but what I don't want us to miss as we dive into this book 
is God's priority. As helpful as those, uh, those discussions can be, I want you to realize those questions are not the main one God wants us seeking answers to. Although it's completely good and helpful apologetically and philosophically and, and relationally to think through those things intellectually, don't miss God's priority here. We can do that a lot. Ask really good questions, seeking answers to really good questions that actually aren't God's primary questions he wants us to seek answers to. And as I said, that is who is God and who are we? And over and over again, we'll see that the Bible throughout emphasizes often the who question, God. And the why question for his glory and the good of his people. But it tends not to bear down as much on the how question and the when question of creation and other miracles as well. And so let's make sure we keep God's questions as our primary questions. I will say that I think to, to treat the Bible with integrity as it gives itself to us, you've at least got to have a profoundly miraculous creation by God from nothing at the beginning and in making specific kinds of living things. The Bible makes a big emphasis on God making specific kinds of living things and creating at the beginning. I think you've got to have at least that to understand the Bible correctly. So God does this. And he does it for lots of reasons. And, and I want you to realize that, that it may seem to you like believing in creation is this quaint, old-fashioned idea that no real smart person believes anymore. You get that impression when you listen to people talk a lot in, in media and, and elsewhere in, in your university, maybe, or your high school, maybe. But, but I want you to realize how fundamental it is to human understanding throughout the centuries that there is something bigger than us to whom we answer and that there's an instinct to worship him. And even though that's gotten distorted throughout human history in so many ways or even perverted, there is nevertheless an overwhelming understanding human beings have had that God is the creator of everything. That there is something that, that is the origin of who we are. We didn't make ourselves. We, there's no such thing as self-creation. It's an illogical concept and has no basis in science or anything we observe that things just create themselves. It's, it's incoherent to even talk that way. And please realize how fundamental this is. You know, uh, this Monday was Martin Luther King Day. And... Uh, and this photograph to me, uh, oh, oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, I got to do this. I'm sorry. I completely forgot. Uh, oh, right. This is where, oh my goodness. Um, yes, when, when we realize God is creator and that Jesus is creator, it leads to worship. It leads to worship. That's what we do. We see God for who he is. And over and over again in the Bible, we see worship springing from this. Arise, bless the Lord your God for, forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. This is a pattern we see in the Bible. You recognize God as creator and you get on your face before him to worship him. And that includes Jesus. And Nehemiah 9, you've made the heavens. That's what makes him who he is. Why do we worship him this way? Bless the Lord. Well, because he's the one who made the heavens. The heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them and the heavenly hosts bow down before you. God's creator, so we worship him. And the psalm we were singing this morning, come let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord. 
What's next? Our maker. He's our maker. He's the one who made us. So of course we worship him. That's what we do. That's just the the right response. And so please realize these implications of creation. They come out of this. Well, if God's the creator and we are created by him, that means we depend on him for everything. We answer to him for everything. That means we actually have dignity. We actually have uh, something that makes us awesome. Yes, that word's completely overused, but I think it's applicable to human beings, not independently of God, But in light of God making you in his image, there's something awesome, fearfully and wonderfully made about us. We have meaning. We have purpose. We have accountability. I don't think you have good reason for any of these things without God as the creator. But with God as the creator, there is profound reason for these things. Here's the picture. This this picture is one of the most disturbing pictures I've, I've ever seen, actually, and one of the greatest I've ever seen. I love this photograph. I hate this photograph. I... It's just amazing to me. Here in the beginning of the civil rights movement, these men are walking down the street holding signs that say, I'm a man. I'm a human being. This must be acknowledged. This must be understood. It was Martin Luther King Day, his birthday on Monday, and how amazing to go actually back and read Martin Luther King's writings. I I last week went back and read... Uh, some portions of letter from a Birmingham jail. And, you know, he quotes, actually he quotes Jefferson, but Jefferson's just quoting Genesis when he says all men are created equal and given by their creator certain rights, right? So this whole idea of rights that the civil rights movement is based on is a profoundly biblical idea. And I'm not sure where you get an idea like universal human rights apart from a biblical view of humans, I've not found a good basis for that belief anywhere else but the Bible. The Christian view of humans is one that means we equally deserve dignity and value. And how profound that, uh, the Sanctity of Life Sunday was the week before in the 15th. And, and it's the same idea that all human beings, no matter the race, no matter the, the demographic, no matter the, the intellectual capabilities, no matter the contribution to the gross domestic product, no matter the sickness, the weakness, the marginalization, no matter whether someone is born or unborn, they deserve human rights and human dignity and value. That's the basis for this idea most of us walk around with. It comes right from the Bible. And I don't know where you find it otherwise. Honestly, I've looked. I've looked at world religions. I've studied human history, and I've not found a good basis for this idea that all human beings are equally dignified. It's actually not how the world has run for most of the world. It's a profoundly Christian idea, actually. God is good. And when we think about who God is, we should understand him as the creator. And we should marvel at the intelligence of the design of everything. Isn't it amazing that even atheists say things like, oh man, my hip just isn't working like it's supposed to. Acknowledging some sort of intention and a a rightness and an ability to define when it's not working as out of the order of things, the way they're made to be. God is awesome, and as much as I appreciate the arguments for God's existence from an intelligent design, I I wish we had a movement that was as influential, which is an argument for God's existence as creator, from the extravagant lavishness of creation. 
Yes, creation is amazingly intelligently designed. There's no doubt about that. But it's also incredibly extravagantly generously designed for who he is. So as we seek uh, for what it is, as we seek to know who God is, don't miss how amazingly even playful creation is in its extravagance. We lived in uh, Cambridge for a while in England. We got there in the winter, and it was cold and drizzly, just like you think of England so often. And we, we spent several months there, and the first few were in, in wintertime, and it was cold, and I bought a giant sweater because I was always cold. And, and I will, we, we used to drive into Cambridge every morning, and uh, we would go by this barren field every morning. And one morning in April, we turned the corner to drive by this big barren field, and it was barren no longer. It had exploded in daffodils and daisies. I mean exploded. We, we pulled over because it was so astounding. I don't mean 10 or 15 or 20. This thing had thousands, it seemed, of daffodils. And, and we, we pulled over, and I want to make sure we think about God as the God who made daffodils. You know, in one of the Sherlock Holmes stories, Sherlock Holmes says, if there were no other argument for the goodness of God, the rose should be sufficient. <laughs> I mean, you could ponder one flower. And when I started thinking about this, I said, I wonder how many kinds of flowers there are. It's not just daisies, daffodils, and roses. It, do, you know, I went and, do you know how many kinds of flowers there are on the planet that we know about? 400,000. What sort of God makes 400,000 kinds of flowers? It's not enough for him to make 1,500 or 10,000. 400,000 kinds of flowering plants on the planet. What sort of God does that? How amazing must he be to make that many kinds of flowers? Do you know we just recently found out that the rings of Saturn are actually braided we didn't know that for, mo for most of human history. And just recently we discovered, wait, they're braid they have braids. Why would God braid the rings of Saturn? I just think because it's really fun and beautiful and amazing. You know, there's not like, oh, obviously they're braided so that. No, it's just, that's amazing. Think about the fact that just a bit north of here are trees, the largest living things in the world. These sequoia trees, these redwood trees. Oh my goodness, they're incredible these trees. And, and they're, they're so big, they take your breath away. I'll never forget the first time we drove through the tunnel and came out the other side to see lower, uh, to, to see the southern valley of Yosemite for the first time. You know the expression, it takes your breath away? It really did. I had that experience of, <gasps> it just took my breath away. I gasped. I didn't decide to gasp, but I did as I saw El Capitan and Half Dome and Bridal Veil Falls and that amazing valley. We just were there two weeks ago, and the ice and the snow was awesome. It really was. Bridal Veil Falls covered in, in ice. I think, I think if I had to choose, waterfalls would be my favorite thing in creation, it, it, besides humans. Um, uh, of course, right? But, but in natural creation, just... They've got movement, they've got uniformity with all sorts of diversity at the same time. They've got sound, that roar, they get covered in ice, they create beautiful pools and they make their own rainbows. Come on, waterfalls are good. I'll have a good argument with you about what may be better. But, but think, about, think about the fact that God said, man, human beings are going to love sunsets. So I'll make sure there's one happening 
all the time. He could have made things so there's one sunset for humans a day. But there's a sunset and a sunrise always going on on the earth. How amazing is that? There are mountains that create their own weather. What sort of God do we serve here? There are glaciers miles long that we with the Clarks watched calve one time where they just release giant portions of ice that are the size of this room that just fall into the water and create this wave that you could surf. It's just amazing. My wife's favorite thing in creation, since we're on it, is evergreen trees laden in snow with a blue sky behind them. Hard to improve on that. Just amazing. How about palm trees in front of an amber sunset? That's pretty great. Uh, So many things happening in creation that we often take for granted. Um, Do you know how many stars there are in the observable universe? When you read about astronomy, they keep using this term, the observable universe, which is an amazing term. So as overwhelmingly massive as the universe is, We're just talking about the observable universe. You mean there's more we can't, yeah, we'll just suspend that for now. But in the observable universe, do you know how many stars they estimate exist? You remember the, the sun is a star, right? A puny one, comparatively. But it's, it's, it's a star, and they say, how many stars are there in the universe? It, they estimate in the observable universe there are a hundred billion stars per galaxy. Per galaxy. So that means in the observable universe, there are a billion trillion stars. What sort of God are we worshiping here? I mean, to think that we would think we know better than him. Uh, how, one of my favorite things that I appreciate and enjoy the most in creation is taste buds. Have you ever just pondered taste buds for a while? They're amazing. Taste buds are astounding. That they absorbed chemicals and enzymes that give you the sense of, oh, this is sweet or savory or salty or bitter or umame. Just this, this, this savory taste that we sort of discovered in 85 and included in the other four. How cool is that? And then there are all these combinations of these, these tastes. Limitless combinations. It's an amazing invention that God says, oh, he could have made food with no taste that it was completely nutritious, just IV it, right, or something. But no, he says, I'm going to give them countless joy experiences with tastes of food. It's just an astounding thing. Do you know how many taste buds you have? They're actually not the bumpy things on your tongue. That's for texture so food doesn't slide off all the time. So it can sit there and you can actually enjoy it. Isn't that amazing? The bumpy things are just for texture, but the taste buds are in those, and they have lots of these little hair-like things that actually gather those chemicals they absorb and send to your brain, and then combine with your olfactory senses, your nose. So your tongue and your nose are giving you incredible joy through food all the time, and God just did all that. It's just amazing. The average person is born with 10,000 taste buds. Did you know that? that actually uh, re-cre- uh, uh, re-energize themselves every two weeks. You, you get new taste buds every two weeks on a regular basis. Old people get down to just 5,000, which is one of the saddest things to me about getting old, is dulled taste, right? More Tabasco, right? So uh, <laughs> some of us are down to six or 5,000 at this point, and that's kind of a bummer. But, but how awesome are taste buds? How about the hand? You could ponder the wonders of a human hand for months, 
just a hint. Our most brilliant engineers are doing everything they can to just start to get close to create robotics like a hand. Or the human eye. Have you ever studied a human eye? It is just astounding. And how about that God has made all sorts of things that humans don't even know about yet just because he enjoys them. Things on the bottom of the sea. Do you know, do you know what this is? Um, that's a tent. That, that's a ruby dragon. They just, figured that, they just found this one recently. We didn't know he existed. He's at the bottom of the sea. We sent this, this uh, robotic camera down, and we found, oh, there's a dragon we didn't even know, ex- a sea dragon we didn't even know about. What sort of God is that who makes things, and, and for all the existence of humans, he's the only one who's been enjoying it until now. And how about this picture? I love this picture. You've got that tent that, by the way, is pretty amazing, too. How much would Abraham love that tent right there, right? Uh, but how about the dog? The dog's incredible. Do you know they've trained dogs now to tell someone they're about to have a seizure 20 minutes before the seizure? How about that amazing human in the tent? And how about the Milky Way that's above the tent? This God we serve is an awesome God. And as we think about who he is, actually the most awesome thing about him is not even the ruby dragon or taste buds or the hand or the eye or even the Milky Way. It's that this creator God loved us so much, he sent his son, the creator as well, the son into our world to take on the frailties of this world to live for us and die for us and redeem us, and fix this world that we have so terribly destroyed. Fix this relationship that has been destroyed between us and him. The most awesome thing you can think about the creator is that he enters into his creation through the sun, and he forgives us. And he walks our streets. He enters into creation, and as John tells us, the creator came, and we didn't recognize him. We were too busy going about our day to notice that the creator had joined with the creation, to redeem the creation. And that's the gospel, friends, that this God who created us is recreating us in his son. And it's by faith in him, not not depending on ourselves like Adam and Eve decided was the right way, but depending on our creator for everything, our very life and our new life in him through Christ. And that's the point of all of it. It's Jesus, the creator coming to his creation. And Christians are those who've realized and received him in that amazing display of his love for us in the Son. Let's pray. Lord, help us to depend on Jesus more than ever before. Lord, thank you for uh, ruby red dragons at the bottom of the sea, for the rings of Saturn that are braided. Thank you for the incredible realities of our physical existence. Thank you for your awesome character we find in creation all around us and lord we thank you most of all that you as the creator did not reject your creation when we rejected you but you moved into it through the sun to redeem and restore and recreate what had been tragically lost when we went our own way help us all lord to see you as who you are and pray really big prayers and have great hope and dependence on you especially for restored relationship with you through Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.